Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I encourage you to check out. Follow the show at Here Comes the Pain Pod on Instagram. That's at Here Comes the Pain, P A Y N E Pod, P O D on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at Payne, P A Y N E D C. That's at Payne, P A Y N E D C. I am particularly excited about today's show because we have a special guest joining us. That is Stephanie Rule. Stephanie, of course, is the 9 a.m. anchor on MSNBC. She is a senior business correspondent for NBC News. And as I say in the lead up for the interview that we recorded yesterday morning, she's a part of the soundtrack of most Beltway mornings in D.C. and most Wall Street mornings up in New York. She's got a pulse and a and a pipeline into uh, Capitol Hill and to Wall Street. And I think she is an appropriate person to talk to, given all the things that are going on. I think we had a very compelling conversation that really twisted around a lot of different topics, starting with the recent news about the Trump administration and the potential that they did not do anything while the Russian government placed bounties on U.S. soldiers. We talk, obviously, about 2020. We talk about coronavirus response, and we really had a wide-ranging conversation. As you know, during these times also, we have to be creative with how we can record these podcasts. Stephanie was kind enough to join me on Zoom. I think we got good audio, but we'll apologize to you if her voice sounds a little bit lower. I promise we had a riveting, great conversation, but uh, technology limits us these days. But I think you'll enjoy the conversation uh, nonetheless. And, uh, you know, Stephanie and I were able to really have a good, wide-ranging discussion about a lot of important topics. So without much further ado, we'll get right to the interview. Very excited to be joining you uh, this week ahead of the 4th of July holiday. We have a very special guest um, who will not allow me to over-introduce her, but she is a special guest that all of you, I'm sure, know, and she's a part of the soundtrack of uh, Beltway Mornings, Mornings Across the Country on MSNBC. That would be Stephanie Rule, the host um, of the 9 a.m. hour on MSNBC, a business correspondent for CNBC. I know I'm leaving some things out, Stephanie. Give me all of your affiliations and titles, please. Uh, I am a friend of yours. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. So, so um, I yes, I anchor the 9 a.m. hour on MSNBC, and I'm the senior business correspondent for NBC News. I have been with NBC for the last four years. Before that, I was uh, managing editor of Bloomberg Television, and before that, I spent 14 years in investment banking. So I am new to politics um, and a little bit new to journalism, but uh, I think in the last couple of years, we've all become veterans. Absolutely. Well, people would not realize that by the hard-hitting journalism that you display. Um, I was just watching you this morning, um, so I know you are fully prepared for all the things we want to talk about in the relatively short time we've got today. Um, Wanted to actually start with you with kind of some news of the day, particularly around Um, The revelations, the reporting around the president, um, the story about the bounties, the the Russian bounties um, that they were working with the Taliban, the place and um, just this really harrowing tale of um, the the president either a not being well informed or his national security officials, you know, purposely hiding information from him um, or him just not really wanting to do anything to hold Vladimir Putin responsible. Just give me, give me your it's take on that. that. The president has already 
taken this news and said it's a hoax, right? That's his go-to line. If he doesn't like it, if he doesn't want to touch it, it's a hoax. And remember, what's really important about this story and all stories, the truth matters, but only if you hear it. And you cannot forget that there's a huge portion of this country that every day of the week watches specific conservative media that whitewashes this, that will call this a hoax and say it doesn't matter. So as we're covering the story, talking about it in terms of we're outraged, we're furious, here's what the president should do. Take all of that and move that aside because none of that is going to happen. And the president's response to this story is not a surprise. We are five months away from a presidential election that we know from Robert Mueller's report, Russia interfered. I wanna say it's like the 14th line of the Mueller report that said, Russia through sweeping and overwhelming means uh, attempted to infiltrate our election, try to hack the system, right? We can't forget that. Despite the fact that Bill Barr put out a summary, uh, a four page summary that basically said nothing to see here, we know that Russian interfered. We know that Michael Flynn spoke to the Russian ambassador the day Obama said, uh, time, to get these to, time to get these Russians out of this country. We know that the president hasn't just doubled down or tripled down, has continued to go out of his way to invite Vladimir Putin to the G7, to compliment Vladimir Putin. None of the president's reaction should surprise any of us. What we should be focusing on is what consequences are there for the president's actions? What is Congress going to do? Not just Democrats who are saying, this is unbelievable, we're gonna subpoena you. Great, you can subpoena all you want. The president blows his nose with subpoenas. And so if there truly is wrongdoing, you are going to see the media crush themselves digging into this, but they're also fighting against a time when you've got a portion of the country saying, I don't believe it, this is too complicated. Uh, why would Russia be involved in the Taliban? The president won on three word slogans. A lot of the country doesn't absorb this, but national security must matter to everyone. So this is a moment where this story has to get tons of reporting and Congress has to step up. Mitch McConnell said, He's not surprised that Russia will do this, but he doesn't have more information. And the question has to keep going back to Mitch McConnell. If you weren't surprised, then what are you going to do? Because let's not forget, Oleg Deripaska, who was not allowed to, a Russian oligarch, who was not allowed to enter this country or do any business here in the last year, set up a huge business in, guess where, Kentucky. We have to stay reporting this, and it can't just be we're outraged. Stephanie, one of the things I think people really appreciate about your brand of journalism and, and how you, you come at the issues is that I think you get past kind of some of the conventional like D.C., um, you know, group think, group talk that, frankly, I mean, even someone like myself probably is guilty of uh, from time to time. But, you know, I like to think about these things in terms of how people are receiving this at home. And even the president's, like, his his closest partisans, right, the people who are his ride or die, like that 35 38% that don't leave him, does this start to put a crack in the armor there? Or do they look at this and say hoax? Do they look at this and say that, the, the you know, this is the lion New York Times, or this is, um, you know, these are, these are the uh, deep state people who are trying to set up the president? Do you think that this is the moment? Stand with the president. Look at all the terrible things he does. Well, guess what? If you are one of those. 
those mem- white evangelicals, you could say, yeah, he might behave horribly, but in four years, I'm not even going to know his name. But the 200 judges that are sitting on the bench is such a win for my personal agenda, I'm willing to ignore this. So your question is somewhat complicated that, yes, in a perfect world, this action should, should have the whole country saying, hold on, this is too much. But you can't look at it in a perfect world. You have to look at it in the big picture. Is the president doing enough good for certain supporters that they're willing to look the other way? Because national security is one of those things. It's like insurance. It, it, you ignore it, you, you, know, you don't need it, you ignore it, you don't think about it until it's too late. Right? Your everyday American doesn't think about national security. We depend uh, on our national security advisors to do so. So this is especially scary. Um, it's when you've seen Republicans like Mitt Romney say, hold on a second. But for the most part, we have seen Republicans fall in line behind President Trump. Lindsey Graham is probably the best example. And one of the reasons is because their constituents stand with the president. So you have to dig in and say, why are so? Why do those people continue to stand with him? And what really, in my opinion, makes the president vulnerable is the economy, right? Because the president's base of supporters aren't necessarily going to leave him, but I think he has a lot of voters who don't say that they vote for him, they don't wear a MAGA hat, they don't have a sign in front of their house, but they will quietly vote for him because they say, well, uh, my 401k is better, or... You know, no regulation is good for my business. And it may be totally self-serving, but that's how a lot of people operate. And they don't trust anyone in government, and they've, they've sort of given up. So the, the, the economy being in such a bad state, um, to me, makes the president the most vulnerable in terms of losing support. I'm glad you're transitioning to the economy. I want to talk about that, and and we could talk about this story with the Russian bounties forever. I think it's just kind of the latest um, you know, thing that kind of comes up that demonstrates how Trump has kind of broken all the norms and broken all the glass um, in his three-plus years in the presidency. He's the one who claims I'm your law and order guy, the military stands with me. If I was a military mom, I'm not sure I could stand with anyone who's saying, this is a hoax, I didn't know anything about it, it didn't raise to the level. I'm sorry, it didn't raise to a level that the president, who his spokesperson, Kaylee McInerney, says he's the most informed person in the world, well, was the most informed person in the world aware of Russia's actions? And if so, why would you publicly hooking up um, Vladimir Putin? If I was a military mom, I wouldn't feel okay with that. Well, and Stephanie, this is the type of thing that, by the way, that impacts those people in the middle, those independents and moderates who maybe aren't partisans, but when they see a president behaving like this, I think this is what swings elections, right? It's that it's that 15, 20% in the middle. Um, so I think you're, you're right to point that out. I want to talk yeah, about- People in the middle, I'll just say this, in the middle my whole life and I'm not proud of it but before I started covering politics I'm, I'm more than not proud of it I'm ashamed by it I didn't actually vote that much and I didn't vote that much because people who are in the middle whose lives are okay don't realize how we take our vote for granted because every because until now for us for, for a privileged person in the middle like me who has never woken up and uh, faced discrimination or risk because of my sex, my gender, my race, my religious beliefs. It was easy for me in other times to blow off things like my right to vote. But now, so much is at risk. You could see a lot of comfortable people in the middle saying we've gone too far. 
you you lead into kind of the the next topic I want to talk about, which is obviously your expertise, your bailiwick is in the business community. And I think we've seen in this moment where Black Lives Matter, where kind of social activism has risen to a new high, we've seen the business community really respond, whether it's changing brands, changing the names of things, except, or, or at least I, I see the skepticism in your face, uh, attempt to signal that they might be looking to respond, really just looking to make sure that their consumers know that they're like live, warm bodies. How do you think about that as somebody who this is kind of like, this is what you do. This is your expertise. Um, how real is it? How much is it is impacted by the fact that these are these are kind of people in the middle, I think, who the center has shifted on. Right. It's not the black consumer. It's not it's not the consumer of the affected group. It's white consumers. It's frankly, people like yourself who you've talked about. And that's why it, it, I, I, this really is a time where it could matter. Before now, the person who was marching was always the person who was inflicted. Scientists march for science. Women march for women. Black people march for black lives. The fact that that's changed right now, I don't think is historic in that, oh my gosh, Joel, everything is going to be different because I don't buy that. But where everything could be different because so many people are saying, I stand up, I speak out, I care. This means this is an opportunity to force change. But do you right? think it's so, carrot? Do you think it's carrot or stick? Do you think it's they feel the heat or do they see the opportunity? Because I do think that's an important thing to think about if you're, you know, if you're if you're Quaker Oats and you're changing the Aunt Jemima brand, are you doing that because you don't want your consumers to think you're on the wrong side of history or because you see the opportunity that Nike took advantage of with Colin Kaepernick years ago, right? Like, so how, how do you I, I think, think about that? It's a little bit of both. And I think I am embarrassingly prop, uh, pragmatic that I don't actually care what your intentions are. I don't care if your intentions are pure profit or your intentions are pure good. My goal is what it actually does. Right? So for the most part, it's probably because the heat is on. Right? Just think about racial and gender diversity. Do I think that an overwhelming amount of white guys intentionally wanted to force women and minorities out? I think a lot didn't, but it didn't dawn on them because why would they think the system was broken? My biggest concern right now is while we're asking for reform, that it's only police reform. To me, the injustices are so widely spread that the police brutality or, or criminal ju uh, criminal justice issues are like chapter four. If we don't address education, housing, income, health disparities, which are over here, we're never gonna fix what's over here, right? How many times is, are people going to say to you, well, you know, I'm really looking to put a woman or a person of color on our board, but like, we just don't have that, there's just not that many to choose from. You're right. There's not that many to choose from. So you need to start figuring this out sooner, right? Goldman Sachs doesn't have to say, well, we're not going to have really eligible young white men anymore. We have to have diversity candidates. Make your training program bigger. If you had 50 kids in it before, have 70. And don't have 20 in the black group. Have them in everybody's group. If you're not figuring this out, look, I look at my own kids, right? My kids go to awesome schools because we're super privileged. And what makes me sad in the last few months is that my kids were barely learning during doing distance learning, okay? Like they were barely grasping anything with the most support and the best schooling. So now here we are with
with our schools still, still closed, and yes, we're thinking about the health issue because it's the most important, but we need to think about the millions of kids that don't go to the best schools, that have parents that are at work, that can't support them at home, that don't have uh, iPads or, or any computers or even Wi-Fi at home. If we want to address injustice right now, think about the millions of kids in this America, poor kids who are losing their education. And in losing their education, while my privileged family maintains ours, it's only going to get bigger. So this moment, we have to do something about. George Floyd's death and the protests, I actually thought we were going to get some sort of social unrest 10 months from now, after the trillions of dollars of stimulus money went out and the rich got richer and the poor got poorer and sick. I thought we would see, you know, sort of an Occupy Wall Street times 100, but it was sort of supercharged with George Floyd's death because I think one of the reasons so many people are in so much pain and out in the streets, because they are sitting and standing idle in their cities with nowhere to work, nowhere to go. If, I mean, I have three kids and they're in a house with air conditioning and they all have their own bedrooms and desks. If my kids lived in the South Bronx and we had 800 square feet and no fresh food to eat and no Wi-Fi and no school, no pool, no summer camp, nothing, I can't imagine the stress my family would be under. And we have to address all of this stuff if we're going to address inequality. And it can't just be philanthropy. You know, Stephanie, one of the things that's been so jarring to me about this moment, and, you know, we're talking about the George Floyd protest, but, you know, you can't talk about that without talking about the twin crisis of coronaviruses. How close America was to the edge? Like, literally, America was, what, two months away from everybody being broke, essentially. Um, I'm, I'm one of those privileged few. I can work social distance, right? I can, my job allows me to work from home. My income, you know, my business has been uninterrupted, but so many Americans don't work in, a, in an industry like that. They work in service industries that require this type of inter- interaction. And it just makes me wonder, have we built the economy kind of on a house of cards that like, that this was all, this is inevitable, okay. whether it's a hurricane or whether it's a, another unforeseen event. Yes and no. I, I mean, you're not you're never going to get me to say yes. It's been built on a house of cards because I am um, a free market, pro capitalism uh, uh, approach to the world. However, the system got so bent and warped, we have to improve it now. When we simply say it was built on a house of cards, let's tear the script up and start over. I just think that's a mistake because at the end of the day, I mean, that's like, I remember I was doing a women's event a year ago and we were, somebody was asking a question about, um, can a man come back after an infraction? And we were sort of talking about it and a woman stood up and she said, I'm leaving. I don't want to hear this. And she said, our corporate America was built um, by the patriarchy rooted in systemic racism. And until it's blown up and we start over, I won't have this conversation. Now, I am not saying that that woman was incorrect, but I am saying in my lifetime, I want, to, I want progress and I want things to change. And I, I bring up me too. If, if, you, if you address any of these issues from a place that we have to completely start over and tear up the script, we're going to lose the plot. Right, so Me Too is an example where if you said to corporate America, every one of you CEOs is bad news, you all did something bad, you, you're, you're 
while you were in charge of things, bad, bad, bad things happened, you had to go. You know what happened? All those companies would write the smallest check they had to, to Time's Up or whatever group it is, set, smile, and then lock the door when you leave. What we need to do right now is get business leaders, government leaders, and everyday Americans to find a way to find some sort of common ground for progress, right? We have more CEOs named John or David than we do women CEOs or black CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. So you gotta know what you're working with. And I'm not saying, oh great, hook up the white guy and meet him where he is, no. But I'm saying, be realistic. Find a way to create progress because you're not going to simply blow the system up well i think it's i think it's that core question of like incrementalism versus like revolution i mean really in a lot of ways it's the democratic primary in a nutshell right it was bernie sanders versus joe biden right like do you take half a loaf do you move the ball up the field a little bit or do you blow it up because you don't like the rules of the game and i do you know, I think that the energy in the street, the activist energy right now that are in the streets with the Floyd protests are very much that um, like the police reform bill is a great example. Right. Okay, those folks did not like they didn't like bill. they didn't like either of those bills. They didn't like the Democratic bill just as much as they didn't like the Scott bill or the Trump executive order because they think it's all hogwash. They think it's all like it's incremental BS. What say you about that? OK, so again, and I realize with everything I say, I'm coming from a place of privilege. Sure. So it's easy for me to say, come on guys, let's hit a single. A single is better than nothing. I realize it's easy for me to say that, but my fear is I've been around long enough that I want to just get the ball rolling. And the one thing I'll say that's different about the business community than politics, and I think that's so disappointing in politics, in the business community, I could hate your guts, but at the end of the day, I got to get business done. And so I'm going to find a way to work with you because I got to keep my business afloat. Well, it's the incentive. It's the incentive structure, right, Stephanie? It's like, think about, okay, think about 25 years ago when Ellen um, admitted she was gay on national TV and how that changed the world. And now you, you pretty much can't have a sitcom without having a character from the LGBT community represented. Why? Because those folks understand that that's not ten, that's an untenable position to not represent that part of our country that's so vibrant in their Ellen version of the world. Is the best example, right? Ellen did this incrementally. And granted, it was huge when she came out and said that. But remember in the last year, the heat Ellen took for sitting next to George Bush at a football game, or maybe it was a baseball game. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so Ellen is someone who's made a massive impact on culture and society, but she didn't do it burning the house down. Absolutely. Um, this is good stuff here. Um, but again, I, it's easy for me to say, don't burn the house down, because my house is not at risk, and, and, and I know that. And, and I'd acknowledge my privilege, too, even as a black man. Look, I'm, I'm educated. Um, I came from a nuclear family. Um, I've probably I, I'm, a, I'm a man. Right. Black women have completely different experience than I do. I think you're right to acknowledge the, the privilege and the biases that we all bring in to the discussion. I tend to be a uh, look. I'm a I'm a system guy. Right. Like I, I worked in the Senate for 10 years. I've worked on presidential campaigns. I believe in institutional remedies. Um, but I don't want to cut the legs out from the energy that's out there in the street.
because I think that we need that in the institutions to kind of push us to do the right thing. Everybody's got a role. Everybody's got a place on the team. Um, and, and, and I do think it's, it's just, it's interesting to kind of think about everybody's perspective. It's so different. Yours is colored by business. Mine is colored by government. The activist energy is colored by years and decades of not seeing anything done in all these institutions that we hold so dear. But they are making a difference, right? There is something though to learn from president Trump's marketing ability. Okay. And, and while I appreciate, um, the devotion, um, and determination of those, uh, uh, of activists, look at how good the president is at branding. Look at Colin Kaepernick as an example. When Colin Kaepernick decided to take a knee, he did it in the most respectable, respectful way imaginable. He asked a former Seahawks player who was in the military, how do I do this and show respect? And that person said, you're going to take a knee, here's how we do it in Arlington and so on and so forth. Yet somehow that act got warped, perverted by the president saying, if you take any, you're standing against the flag, you're standing against the government, which was never true. But when the president repeats it and repeats it, I have to sit down with my parents and say, well, you know what? I have to stand with the, with, with the flag, Stephanie. I, I realize, and I'm going, what? Realize his power to warp a narrative. And sometimes I think that Democrats don't realize that and get themselves so tangled up in the exact word choices and, and, and making sure they're not offending everyone or anyone. And in doing so, they're not effective. Well, the president's lies are effective. So I'm not saying be a liar too, but be aware of the way things go. Look, look at how defund the police or abolish the police immediately got warped, right? Week one of the protests, my own parents were conservative, like enough is enough, this can't happen. We have to change this, right? And then by week two, they were sort of like, well, Stephanie, are we really going to abolish the police? Are we going to have a lawless society? And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, of course not. But phrases like defund the police or abolish the police get morphed into saying, I guess we're just going to live in absolute chaos. Camden, New Jersey, 40 minutes from where I live, had defunded the police. And what did it do? It meant they invested more in police, it meant they invested more in the city. So I do think, let's take a branding lesson from the president and use it, not we, they can use it for good. You know, Stephanie, and I, and I wanna move our conversation forward here. I wanna talk about some other things that are going on, but you know, just the way you lay that out kind of makes me think a little bit about what I talked about on last week's podcast, which is how I feel like the protests are starting to enter the Kaepernick zone in this way. It has, it started off about police violence, which you're right, is a symptom of the larger problem. But now it's about taking down statues. It's about changing brand names. Those are, those are nice to haves, right? Like, I, I, yes, we should take down Confederate statues. We should take down Nathan Bedford Forrest statues, uh, people who founded the Klan. But this is about police killing black people indiscriminately. And I do worry about that. I wish we would, and again, I don't have to live in a town where I have to see a statue every day that celebrates um, torturing, maiming, and imprisoning my ancestors. So I don't know what that feels like. However, this is such an important moment in time where we can reform 
how our police are operating, possibly improve our education system, possibly, 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 that I do not want, that I don't want to jump the shark here and give someone like Fox News the liberty of making their headline, well, here we are. What's next, George yeah. Washington? What's next? You, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it was um it was a congressman in New Jersey who actually said, petition for these things to happen. Let your city take them down lawfully, because if you're ripping down in the dark of night a statue of Robert E. Lee, are you not setting precedent for somebody else to do it of Martin Luther King? And so I just want this demand for change to stay focused because when things start to turn, you are giving the president, you are giving Fox News an opportunity to change the narrative. Don't let them. want to reset here real quick. We got Stephanie Rule, uh, MSNBC anchor, business, lead business correspondent uh, for CNBC, um, you know, really just an important voice um, in the political and the business community um, throughout the country. It was very well There's respected. No such thing as an important voice. Okay, well, well, she's gonna she's gonna f- allow me to uh, force that title upon her here. But um, but we're having a great conversation. I want to take us to talk a little bit of, a little bit more about the 2020 race, uh, Trump v. Biden, um, and just I, I guess I'd like to start just to kind of get your take on where we are. And I think you've you've talked a little bit about it in the first part of our conversation, but just how do you see this? How do your eyes see where the race is right now? I mean, I think it's very hard to see it. I think that um, national polls don't tell you much or they don't tell you enough, or maybe they're not as accurate as they once were. I think that the last few weeks have definitely helped Vice President Biden in two ways. In the fact that the president has um, done such a horrible job in leading the country through the George Floyd protests through coronavirus, right? Coronavirus is now impacting states that really matter to the president. So I would just go back in time. It was about four weeks ago when we were really in the throes of starting to reopen. I was uh, interviewing the president of Walmart and I said, you're biggest employer in the country. You've been open this whole time. What do you hear from your employees? What's their biggest concern? And he said their biggest issue was getting customers to adhere to the new rules, the guidelines. And I'm going, what? And he said, because in certain parts of the country where things are politically charged or where it's not a hot spot, or you don't know anyone in your community or your family who got sick, and this is a time of fake news, certain people have made it political and they don't believe that coronavirus is real. Well, now it's hitting those places. And so the president is going to have a much harder time saying, this thing's behind us. It's over and done with, right? The president could tell my mother in New Jersey, well, there's a caravan of criminals coming from Central America, and we have to build a wall. My mother's never going to see those people. She's never going to see a wall. But you can't lie about a virus that is quickly hitting the entire country and the entire world from a health and economic perspective. So in terms of leadership, the president has failed. Joe Biden was struggling with energizing people, especially younger voters. And while I still don't think that they are necessarily excited about Joe Biden, they are now much more excited to vote. And I think they will go out there and vote. And I think that Joe Biden, the country is in an enormous amount of pain. 
Yeah. If you think about the the econ- I mean, this week I was in Baltimore with two uh, African American business women who have lost everything, who said, despite people telling them they can never start a business, one started a hair salon and one started a catering business. Okay, their businesses are completely shut down right now, but they don't have enough employees, so they didn't get the PPP loan. They weren't able to go on unemployment because they run a system or. If the state of Maryland or New Jersey or anyone says, okay, it's time to reopen. This isn't a snow day. You don't just turn the lights on and you run back out there. So if you have a business, you can now operate at 50% capacity, but only 30% of your clients want to come back. But by the way, you still have to pay 100% of your costs, your rent, your utilities, even more now that you have to get the plexiglass and everything else. This country is hurting. And if Joe Biden can stand up and say, here's my solution, right? Here's my SWAT team of who I'm going to surround myself with. Joe Biden is not a guy of of a huge ego. He's saying, I I will be your bridge president. I'm gonna get you to the other side. And I think people are so overwhelmed that I think the fact that he is a sound, reasonable, responsible person of high integrity, I think that uh, has shown through in the last few weeks. And the argument that he's hiding in his basement is so glib and silly. He's not doing anything different than what you're doing and I'm doing right this very second. But make no mistake, the president's abilities to pull out all the stops and tricks like you've never heard of are real. And Joe Biden has to be prepared. And I'm not saying I know how, but things are going to get ugly and crazy. Stephanie, I want to share something with you. So I was talking to a couple of, you know, I have a kind of little group like a lot of people uh, that I text with a group of political friends. And um, when the news that Carly Fiorina was going to vote for Joe Biden, that came out about a week ago. And you know what I know what the first thing I thought when I saw that? I said, I used some expletives. I said, God, people really hate Hillary Clinton, huh? That's the first thing I thought, because. There is really just in terms of like political profile, there's not a lot of difference between Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And many of the people who said Hillary Clinton was unacceptable and that that her candidacy made them willing to take a chance on a Donald Trump. They're now saying that was a mistake. My bad. We can't do it. It's got to be Joe Biden or bust. Even Bolton, who I think walked back his initial statements. But Bolton has said he's not going to vote for Trump. Okay. How much does this say we about have, okay, Biden about versus Clinton? And yeah, you, you've got John something. John to... Bolton gets zero, zero credit. I, I agree. Okay? I agree zero. with that. Agree. I would like one person who has a free copy of John Bolton's book to read it out loud. And if I can listen to it for free, I will listen to it. I don't want any person that I know to spend one red cent on that book. If, John, if things were so untenable and if the president is truly a risk to our country, then why in God's name didn't John Bolton respond to Congress and testify? I think so there's about two million. There's, there's about two million reasons why he didn't respond uh, via his book advance, it sounds like. But yes, now, I take your point. Yeah. yeah. And you could, it, but I'll tell you, if people, if, if you try to talk about uh, how people feel about her or likability, people kill you for it. And they say, how dare you, Stephanie? How, don't bring this up. You're part of the problem. Um, but people, it was Mark Zuckerberg who actually said this a few years ago after he did a 50 state tour. People trust relationships. They don't trust information. 
So the information on paper about what Hillary Clinton would be as a, what she would do as a president, the policies that she supports, her platform, that's information. But relationships, how we feel is how we vote. And um, she had a lot of people, listen, yes, she absolutely won the popular vote, um, but there are definitely people in the middle. There are Republicans, and you can say, I don't care about Republicans, there are Republicans who were unwilling to vote for Hillary Clinton, but who will vote for Joe Biden. That's just, again, just for me, because Joe Biden, and and listen, um, I'm not going to make any friends at the Biden uh, headquarters by saying this, but like, he has not been a remarkable candidate. The The remarkability of his candidacy is that his theory, his mission statement has proven out to be true, is that voters are so uncomfortable with Donald Trump, both in the Democratic primary and in the country, that they are willing to accept what essentially is generic Democrat. Like Joe Biden is virtually, he is generic Democrat. He is the most unoffensive, uh-huh. blah Democrat you can, you can say. He's a very accomplished man, but there's... There's not a lot there other than the fact is you can look at him and see what you want to see. And that theory has been proven correct. He run an impressive campaign. Um, He was on life support, right? What happened in South Carolina was remarkable. And And a South Carolina congressman did that for him. And now the question is, can Democrats fire up enough energy to get behind him to defeat Donald Trump? But I don't think, I mean, honestly, in their heart of hearts, are, are, is, is Joe Biden's campaign going to tell you he's running the most extraordinary campaign? I don't think that they would. And I don't think the moment calls for extraordinary. And and, and, that's, and, exactly and that's right. It. Yeah. The moment isn't calling for it. The moment is calling for experience, trustworthiness, empathy, and capable hands. And he has all those things. This feels like 1980. This feels like 2008. It feels like you have a, a thing that is happening, this immovable object, whether it's in 1980, you had the Iranian hostage crisis in 79 and 80. In 2008, you had the, you know, the Great Recession um, caused by, you know, the Wall Street collapse. It feels like there's this thing that no politician can control, but all you can control is how people think about your relationship to solving it. And in, in, in 08, it was who's better in crisis, Obama or McCain? Obama won that in a landslide. In 1980, Jimmy Carter's presidency was taken over by the Iranian hostage crisis. That's probably the closest historical comparison to this point now. So in that comparison, you know, Biden is Reagan, essentially, um, which I think would probably make a lot of Democrats um, jump out of a window. But you get my point. (laughs) The thing is, nobody should jump out of a window. Yes, on the extremes, you're always going to have awful people. But I actually believe that everyone is looking for the same thing. Everybody wants to be financially secure, socially free, and physically safe. And you've got to figure out a way to find people where they are and talk to them. Because there were people who thought that the president was ridiculous and absurd and a jerk, but the system hadn't worked for them for so long Right? Do you remember? I think he only did two African American events. I want to say maybe one was in Chicago and one was in Michigan. And he said that awful thing that the media lost their mind over, where he said, "This is Trump." Oh, I I know it very well, Stephanie. I cut an ad. I cut an ad out of that. I know I know exactly what you're talking about. But here's the thing. And again, I've never been her. 
If I were a single mother in the south side of Chicago, whose kids went to the worst school, who lived in an area that was filled with crime and, and, and every other bad possible stereotypical thing, I might say, enough. what do I have to lose? Let me try something because the system doesn't work for me. Well, what we know the is that... thing can be said for people in western Pennsylvania who live in coal communities who are saying, give me something. So the president tapped into something to America, to parts of America saying, the system hasn't worked for you. Let's try something else. But here's the dirty little secret. We didn't try anything else. It's now worse for people, vulnerable people, and better for wealthy people. So what he promised to do, he didn't do. He worsened it. The only thing that he has stuck to is pushing this cultural, this false narrative cultural divide that isn't actually true. Because there's more business leaders today trying to solve for these issues than the president certainly is. And it doesn't feel like he has a second pitch. He feels like somebody who, you know, so funny. We think of Donald Trump as this ultimate unconventional politician who won in 2016 in part because he was zigging where everybody was zagging. He's doing the opposite this time around. He's trying to run the same campaign that he ran in 16 now, and he doesn't have a second act. But Joel, here's where he's exposed. In the last campaign, Hillary Clinton and her 30 years in in the public eye and in politics were on display and were there to be criticized. He had none because he never did it. And he could say, I'm a business guy. I've never done this, so on and so forth. He didn't have to stand against his record. Now he does. So for all those people who he was going to make their life so much better, like don't forget, right? What happened during the war, the, the, the quote unquote trade war with China that was an abject failure? We spent 30 billion with a B dollars in farm aid because the president said, I'm going to solve this for my base, the farm community. And all it did was hurt them more. So the question is, are all those people that he said, well, let me just give you this sugar. You're going to get this farm aid and get you through this. Or are they going to realize he didn't do anything for us. He made my situation worse. So he he not only doesn't have a second pitch, but his first pitch don't work anymore. Absolutely. So here comes the Payne Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We are here with the great Stephanie Rule. Uh, that's the only uh, disclaimer I'll put on her since she won't let me give her any extra fluff. Um, we're winding down here in our time. We've got a couple more minutes. And Stephanie, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about 2020, but I want to talk about who Joe Biden is going to pick to be his vice president. We know it's going to be a woman. Um, we assume it's going to be a woman of color. Um what, what, what say you? I, obviously, I think we kind of know broadly the demographics of who he's going to pick. But what is that pick going to say about Biden, his campaign and how he's going to run against Trump? So I think he could pick someone. I think the person who I have in mind, and this was brought to me by someone the other day, and I've been thinking about it for days, is not a woman. Um, but it's someone who's done extraordinary things for our country who is a true leader at a time when we need leaders, who would have an overwhelming number of people out there supporting him. Even in this time of voter suppression, people would get on lines around blocks for days to vote. What if Barack Obama was his VP pick? I, I've, I've heard people talk about this. I will, I'll play this game for, for a minute. Play it. I don't, play I don't it think, me. I don't think constitutionally that is because you have to assume that this is a person that can be president 
if uh, something unforeseen happens to the president. I think I think because Obama's term limited, um, I don't I don't think that's possible. Although we got to be honest here, that hasn't really been tested. So it's very, very possible. You know, I mean, the way you're talking, it kind of sounds like it hasn't been tested. Just like all of these things with the Trump family and the emoluments clause and their businesses. Well, that shouldn't happen, but it was never tested and it was never written in there. So let's not get overly nerdy and say, well, staff, I don't think the rules would work. Who knows? Trump never approaches it that way. Let's just actually see. I think I, I, I appreciate the creativity there. And I think, by the way, the, the, the person with the last name Obama that he could have picked that would have made a lot of people happy is Michelle Obama. Although well, I don't know if I don't I don't know if she would want that demotion. I think being most admired woman in the world um, is probably a much much bigger job than being vice president of the United States. Well, that's actually my she, she's my she's my number two. But I think that you want to pull out all the stops right now. You want to just say let's just make this thing over and done with. And also, the VP has more time than the president, right? Barack Obama has a lot he wants to do. He could be really impactful on a number of things as VP, and I think it would be extraordinary. Well, I think if he put a Barack Obama on his Supreme Court list, see, I think that's something that now see that that could be that could bring the best of both worlds together. That could that could bring that Obama love back. Although I think Barack Obama, by all accounts, is enjoying his retirement. So I'm not sure if we can convince him off the golf course. Which, which he would be awesome at, by the way. Stephanie, he'd be amazing at that. He would, because think about people who are, who are when you would hear those like inside the Beltway stories of, of people who are in the administration who are frustrated saying like, oh, it's analysis paralysis with him. He talks about it and thinks about it and reads about it. Great, that's perfect for the Supreme Court. <laughs> I'm sure he would be happy to follow William Howard Taft as our only, as only our, I think he would be our second president who was on the Supreme Court after his presidency. So um, I'm all for that idea. I think if Joe Biden does like a Trump-style list of who his Supreme Court nominees, the first one on there should be Barack Obama. I agree. Make that list. Democrats wake up on this judges list, right? Judges impact, our judicial system impacts every element of our daily lives. But Steph, people, Democrats Democrats don't vote. But, but Democrats don't vote based on the court. And as much as we want them to, as a political as a political professional, I'd love for Democrats to get worked up about that. They don't. Get worked up. Wake up. I mean, we had Brett Kavanaugh, what, in 2018 and early 2018? And I think Democrats won not because of Brett Kavanaugh, but despite the Republican energy behind Kavanaugh. So I think that tells you the differences between the, the, the two parties. Um of the boring vice presidential candidates, of of the conventional non-creative uh, candidates, I, you know, the, I, I think my list would cons- would my list would be made of of two different groups. There's kind of the well-known high name ID folks, right? The Kamala Harris's, the the Susan Rice's, and then it's like the new voices, the less well-known, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, maybe a Stacey Not Abrams right. is kind of in the middle of Val Demings. I'm curious about whether or not you agree with my thesis that those are really the two directions that Biden can go in right now, either more well-known or less well-known based on where the race is. 
A hundred percent. I don't think I know enough. I think that um, I spend too much time or a lot of time thinking about the middle or thinking about um, Republicans that you could turn to vote for Joe Biden. And I don't appreciate the amount of progressive energy there is out there. So I know that when I watched Amy Klobuchar go on TV and say that she didn't think it was her time and she was pulling herself out, I didn't believe that for one single minute. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, nobody nobody opts out of out out of uh, you know being potentially the vice president of the United States unless they're unless they're kind of pushed. Um, here's what's interesting though. You know, I'm surprised at that say, list. I think Stacey Abrams is one of the most impressive people I have ever met in my life. About them, I mean, all the women who you just mentioned, I think they'd all be extraordinary. I'm surprised that that list does not have more business leaders, you know, to the point of what we were talking about before. You were talking about the power of the business community being able to kind of cut through some of the political stuff. I'm surprised that you don't have like, I'm just throwing a name, like a Linda Johnson Rice, right? She's a black entrepreneur um, or other kind of like women in the business industry. Do you think they really want that job? Well, that's the question, right? Right. Like, let's just be honest for a moment. A truly monster successful business person is richer than most people could ever imagine. They can have a lot of, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. They can have a lot of impact while they stay in the private sector. They lead extraordinary lives and they're going, why am I gonna put myself in this mess? Why am I gonna put my kids through it, my spouse through it, and have everybody look into every single thing I've ever done since the dawn of time? So I don't know that there's that many business leaders, right? Like there's talk that Robert Smith um, from Vista Partners, a private equity firm, uh, could be running for Senate. That would be extraordinary. But I think that um, given how rotten and cruel and twisted and the amount of misinformation that's out there exists. I think there's a lot of people who live really nice lives who are saying, I'm going to take a pass. And, I, don't, I don't want to put myself through that. And for those listeners who don't know. For a long time with why Mike Bloomberg wasn't going to run. Right? Well, He's one of the most impactful philanthropists on the planet. He runs a monster business. Why on earth would he put himself through that? But alas, he did. And, and, and for those who don't know, Robert Smith is, of course, the billionaire, African-American billionaire who gave, I think, the biggest individual gift to Morehouse College um, ever um, in, in history. And um, he cleared out the, the student debt of every graduating senior. Right. But here's the question, and I think it's a good one to end with. It's have we disincentivized people, good people, yes. from stepping into the, the public square? Um, 100%. And has the Trump era kind of, has that made that easier or, 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 or worse? a lot of business guys I know out there because A, he's not an actual business success. They know he's a fraud uh, and they know that they're 10 times smarter and more capable than he is, but they think they never could have run because they would have gotten crushed. Uh, on a- Trump was able to take, look, look at how Mitt Romney got annihilated for being a wealthy businessman. Annihilated for it. And, and the kind of business he did, he actually knows how, yes, it was private equity, but how to create jobs, how to optimize businesses, he does. And him coming from the private equity industry was a huge liability for him. Trump was able to turn it and say, see, 
Doesn't everybody want to be the American dream just like me? So on one hand, business guys are men and women, but I'll say more men that I, you know, I can think of off the top of my head, are drawn to say, I could do that job 10 times better than Trump. And they think that, but at the same time, one of Trump's, his magic, and the Trump family magic is they're shameless, right? Most people would be so embarrassed to have all their dirty laundry aired, they would never want to do it. And I'll leave you with this one example. A judge in the state of New York ruled so that no one in the Trump family is even allowed to sit on a charity board because of how they misused the money in their foundation, okay? If that happened to me, I would sever my own head with a nail file and throw it in the Hudson River. I'd be so humiliated. Yet the Trump family keeps on cruising, right? Like that comes out and Ivanka's like, great. So I'm just going to host a luncheon and sit between Angela Merkel and Christine Lagarde. Most people have shame within them. And so I think when people think about what you'd have to go through to run for office and all that comes out, it doesn't bother Trump. He, they truly just keep on trucking. And most rational people would say they couldn't put themselves or their family through that. That's a great place to leave our conversation. Um, I am so fortunate and grateful to have spent the last 45, 50 minutes or so with the great Stephanie Rule um, host on MSNBC, Anchor, um, CNBC. Um, Stephanie, any projects, anything going on that we should know about from you Actually, other than just a great day-to-day uh, work? So every day you can tune in to MSNBC at 9 a.m. We're doing a lot of specifically focus on economic inequality on the Today Show and Nightly News. And actually, tomorrow is our first cross-network. That's Telemundo, NBC, CNBC, and MSNBC special. Uh, Wilfred Frost, Jose Diaz-Balart, and myself, a special focusing on jobs in America. Um, and I'll be specifically focused on uh, the economic picture for black Americans, specifically black women. And I'll be sitting down with Melody Hobson, who is one of the most extraordinary African-American businesswomen I will certainly, I will certainly be tuned in, and I know all my listeners will as well. Thank you so much, Stephanie Rule. Thank you to all those who are listening. This has been the Here Comes the Pain podcast with your host Joel Payne. Thanks so much for your time.